Joe, thank you. Thanks, guys. Great to be, is that on? How are we doing? Can you hear me? Yep, great to be with you again. Um, hard to follow that story, wouldn't it? I mean, who wants to preach after that? Should we just have a response for adoption and fostering the rest of the morning? No, it's uh, brilliant. Thank you, Sharon and Chloe. That was fantastic. Um, I uh, have the privilege of being part of leading here at King's Arms, but also leading um, Catalyst, which is the network family of churches that we're part of as a community. And uh, we were away as leaders. We have around 80-odd churches in the UK, and we serve about 50 nations overseas as well as a group of churches together. Just brilliant this week to have uh, the opportunity to meet as leaders, to pray and to fast um, together for all that God's doing. And just so many stories of what the Lord is doing, but just one which I couldn't resist sharing with you. Um, a friend of ours who works into the Middle East, as we do, um, goes to similar places to us. He was telling, me, uh, telling us as a, a group about a lady that he met from Syria in another nation. He met her, refugee, asked her her story. And her story was this, that one day she was obviously a Muslim in Syria, um, living through the war. One day, in a dream, Mary appeared to her, wait for it, theologically, Mary appears to her in a dream and says, I've lost my son, can you help me find him? And so she says, yes, in the dream, you have little control over what you do, do you? So she says, yes, and they walk to, she walks with Mary to a border checkpoint, goes through the checkpoint. On the other side, she finds Jesus and says, oh, Mary, we found your son. That's the end of the dream. She wakes up thinking that was very strange. Obviously, she knew a few Orthodox Christians, so knew about Mary, didn't know anything about Jesus, really. Um, anyway, a few weeks later, she and some friends decided it is just getting too, we've got to get out. We are not going to survive this thing. We've got to get out. They're in uh, Aleppo. We've got to get out. And so they start to walk to the border. And when they reach the border, there is the checkpoint that she saw in her dream. Never seen it before in her life. Goes through the checkpoint. On the other side, about within a few days, she meets some believers and they lead her to faith in Christ. <laughs> she finds the son. And she said, she was sharing with him, she said, now 10 of my family members, we escaped together and we've all come to faith in Christ, all following Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I just love that story. Even in the midst of, even in the midst of war, God is, God is working. And, uh, you know, we, we're in a series at the moment from the book of Daniel called Exiles and Ambassadors, and we're looking at how we bring change to this world. Does this world need change? Uh, yeah, it needs it, doesn't it? How do we bring change? How do we play our part? Something needs to change. And Paul and Steve have begun this series, done a phenomenal job in uh, looking at what uh, we need to change, the kind of things we need to do. And this morning, we're going to look at what, what happens when we meet resistance. How do we cope with resistance when it comes against us? Have you ever been intimidated by a boss or a teacher or someone in authority because of your faith for any reason? Have you ever been at a work or school environment that was just toxic for human flourishing? People just couldn't thrive. The, 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 the whole environment that was undervaluing, people could get the chop at any point. It just didn't encourage people to flourish. You ever been tempted to do something you knew was wrong, but everyone else was doing it? Or been told that you had to do something that you knew was wrong, or you would face the consequences? Have you ever been tempted to hide your faith for fear of being persecuted? I'm sure none of those relate to any of you. Just turn to the person and say, I don't, I'm not going to get much out of this preach. I can't <laughs> relate to any of that. That doesn't make any sense. I imagine, um, anyone experienced any of those? Yeah, few of, oh, only a few of us. I think some of you are just not putting your hands up because you are overwhelmed with that. The, the reality is we face this 
stuff, don't we, all the time. And so this morning, particularly, this is going to be applicable for those who are at work uh, or also at school, but um, it will have lessons for all of us. If you're retired, if perhaps you're looking after the kids at home, which is work, by the way, uh, whatever you're doing, there's going to be stuff in here for us because God's Word is living and active. And so we're going to look at a story from the book of Daniel. We're going to look at this story from 600 BC. That's roughly when it was set, two and a half thousand years ago, and it's valid and alive for today. There's stuff in here for us for today. And so um, there's a few pictures that will go with the story. It's from Daniel chapter 3. You can follow through if you like. It's too long for me to read, so I'll just tell it, but there's some pictures to connect with it, and you can check it out in the Bible to make sure I get it right. The king at the time of the Babylonian Empire was a guy called Nebuchadnezzar, and he was the most powerful man in the world. While we as Britons were still wearing animal fur and living off of turnip pie and mud, he had an empire that stretched from Egypt to Iran. He was so insanely wealthy, we haven't seen the like of it, even in Donald Trump today. <laughs> it wasn't enough for him, though. Did these people really love him? Did they really, I mean, he knew he wasn't a god, but did they really revere him? Almost like a god, but not quite a god. So he decides to build a statue 25 meters tall. The statue's not given the name or attributed to a god, so the chances are, we don't know for sure, but the chances are this statue was a statue of him on a, on a good day, you know, his best side. This was a statue of him. And he gathered all of the leaders of the provinces, which must have been thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. He gathered them in the plain in front of this statue. And he said, when you hear the sound of the instruments, the, the herald proclaimed, when you hear the sound of the instruments, and for those of you who are interested in ancient Babylonian instruments, here's a picture of a lyre, which would be one of the instruments he was talking about. For those of you who are interested in ancient Babylonian instruments, you do need to get out a little bit more as well. But anyway, Anyway, here's a picture of a liar, <laughs> and, and he said, when you hear the sound of the instruments, bow down and worship the, before the statue. There was a problem, though. For one particular group of people, the Jews were exiles in Babylon. They'd been taken from their own land to this land. Now, all the other nations, they could just add another god. Most of them had multiple gods anyway. It didn't bother them to add just one more onto a list of 10 or 20 or 1,000 gods. Who cares? One more. We'll bow. We don't really mind. Quite anything for a quiet life. But the Jews had a problem because God had told them specifically, there is only one God and you're only to worship me. And so, when the music began, tens of thousands of people did not bow bowed down before the idol, but three, at least, did not bow. They stayed standing when the music went on. And these three men that we know of, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were hauled before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he was not happy. Here's a picture of a statue of him. One of the reasons, he looks in a bit of a grump, doesn't he? One of the reasons he wasn't happy was because that beard took about three hours to plait every morning, and it was so itchy to sleep on. That's why one of the reasons he wasn't happy, but he was not a happy fellow. He was furious with our three heroes of this story. He said, is it true that you're refusing to bow down and worship? I looked and saw you through the crowd. I think it's true. And they, this is, I'll read their exact words. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace. Because the king had said to them, if you don't bow down and worship, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. And he said this, 
If it's so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was livid. He said, heat this furnace seven times hotter than it normally is, which was impossible because it was already at 900 degrees C. But anyway, I think he was just like making it really, really hot and throw these guys in. And so they threw them in and it was so, so hot that the guys who actually threw them in were killed as they were throwing them in. That's how hot this thing was. And they were thrown in. And Nebuchadnezzar was amazed. The furnace probably had a hole in the top for the fuel to go in and a door in the sideway so you could get the ash out after the kind of execution. And Nebuchadnezzar was looking through the door and he said, didn't we throw three guys in? Obviously used to killing so many people, he you know, lost count. Didn't we throw three guys in? There's, there's four in there and they're walking around. Who's the fourth guy? He looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar gets as close as he can to the door without getting his beard singed and says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out. And so they come out. I'm guessing they were feeling pretty smug by now and also wishing they'd taken some marshmallows and chocolate biscuits for schmores because <laughs> that would have been really, really cool. And Nebuchadnezzar says this, as the crowd gathers around, noticing that they don't even smell like smoke, their clothes aren't singed, there's literally they've not been touched by the fire at all. He says this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and they yielded up their bodies to die rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. If somebody's going to die today, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And then he promoted them, and so they became with greater influence and authority in the province of Babylon. Wow. Amazing, amazing story. What, what's in it for us? Well, the first thing is this. We have to understand our mission. We have to understand our mission. That's the first kind of backdrop to this story. You know, you might have a job, but the job that you have is bigger than the job that you think it is. Whatever your job, I'm telling you today, your job is bigger than you think it is. God sent his only son to save the world, and you're now part of that mission. Your job is worldwide. You might think, but I only walk, work in a corner shop. No, your corner shop just expanded to fill the whole world. Your job is joining God on his mission. You know, so many uh, looking for God, thinking that it's God who is lost, but it's not really. It's us who is lost, and he is looking for us. He is looking for us. So many believers, they just live to survive. That's the first Thing we can do with our lives. We can just live to survive. We can just live a dual life. When we're at church or around Christians, we're one thing, but when we're uh, in our workplace or in our school, we're completely different. I know that because one of my biggest regrets is that's how I was at school. I lived two different lives, just living to survive. Keep your head down. Hope that nobody notices. So many can live just in disguise. You know, try and live a moral, upright life. Try and just kind of, I don't want to live this dual life. I want to live a right life. I'm, I'm living, though, I'm living in disguise. I, I remember when I was a young Christian, and I, I, there was a, a girl I was chatting to. She was so f close to coming to Christ. 
And then after a while, she said, if I become a Christian, do I have to be as uptight as you are? It wasn't the most encouraging moment of my Christian life. Because the problem is, if we live in disguise, we can end up actually with just living a moralistic life that to the world around just looks really uptight. It's just a list of rules of do's and don'ts. Uh, and to them, it's, it's not very attractive at all. We can live just to survive. We can live uh, to dis- in disguise. Or are we living to bring life? Is the expectation that for your life that God is going to use you to change the world? that you were born to change the world, that I was born to change the world. Sometimes it's in the big ways. You know, um, uh, John Howard, the guy who was uh, in this, there's a statue in our town centre. He was born into a wealthy family. His dad died when he was relatively young, left him an absolute fortune, but he had no purpose whatsoever. And then when he was on a foreign trip sometime, he gets captured by French pirates. Ever see a French pirate? Avoid them. He gets captured by French pirates and thrown in prison. After a while, he gets rescued. They wanted the ransom money. He gets rescued, swapped for another prisoner, and he's released. That moment changed his life forever because living in the squalor of that prison just for a few short months, he just began to wonder, how many other prisoners live like this? And in those days, there was often eight, ten people in a cell, no toilet, no clean water. It was just squalid. If people didn't bring you food from the outside, you just starved to death in prison. That's what he he saw. And he spent his life, by the end of his life, he said he traveled 42,000 miles visiting prisons. No car, no airplane, 42,000 miles visiting prisons. And he'd seen prison systems across the world transform. Sometimes we're called to change the society in the big way, but sometimes it's just in the small way. Jesus said, even a glass of water given in my name will get a reward. Big and small, we are born to change the world. So that's the first thing. Have you accepted your mission? Have you accepted that your part of your role in this life is not just to survive, not to live in disguise, but to live, to bring life wherever you go? Each of us have to accept that. The second thing is this. Our mission then will be resisted. And, and obviously, uh, I doubt there's anyone here who your boss has ever threatened to throw you into a fiery furnace if you didn't do something. If they have, I'd urge you, speak to the HR department. It's not a normal working environment. But the reality is, our mission will be resisted. These guys here are minding their own business, just faithfully serving God within this community, and then suddenly this golden statue goes up and everything changes. Everything changes. Four main ways that I think we see mission resisted. Four main ways. The first is this, the morality test. The morality test is the first way. You see this in the school, you see this in the workplace, the morality test. Often it's a public morality test. I was in a, a board meeting one time and my boss wasn't there. He was 10 minutes late and then he phoned me to ask me a question. I said, where are you? And he said, what do you mean? I said, there's a meeting that you called and we're all here waiting. You're 10 minutes late. He was like, oh, He said, are you with everyone else? I said, yes. He said, go into another room. I need to talk to you. So I stepped into another room. He said, I totally forgot. I'm like 40 minutes away. I'm not going to make it. Tell them that I got called to an urgent meeting that I can't come. I said, I can't do that. He said, no, no, you need to, because otherwise I'll look really stupid. You need to tell them that I missed that meeting because I was called to another meeting. I said, listen, 
If I lie to you, I'll lie for you, and I'll never lie. If I lie for you, I'll lie to you. I'll never lie to, I'll never lie to you. I can't do it. He was really annoyed. He was really hacked off. Sometimes there's like a public morality test. Sometimes it's a private morality test. I, ha- I think I've told you this story before. I had a circumstance one night where I woke up 2 a.m. <clears throat> and I realized I'd written something in a program that in the co- for the company I'd worked for. And I'd, I was not thinking about it. This is like six months prior. I suddenly remembered this thing that I'd written. It had only taken me like half an hour. And I woke up at 2 a.m. thinking about it. And I suddenly realized I've made a mistake. I've made a mistake. I mean, it just must have been God. It just was totally out of the blue. I've made a mistake. I drove, I, I sweated in bed for two hours until I drove into work at 4 a.m. I drove in at 4 a.m., quickly looked. Had I made a mistake? I had. And then I got out Excel and I decided to work out how much it, it was a tiny, tiny rounding error. How much did it cost the company? And I summed it up, went through every invoice, sum, 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 got to the end, 10 grand. <gasps> and then a little voice went into my head. Fix it and don't tell anyone. No one's noticed. Who's ever going to know? The customers hadn't noticed. The sales team hadn't noticed. The accounts team, they noticed everything. They'd not even noticed. The finance team hadn't noticed. You're going to get away. This little voice was, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Do that. <laughs> so I fixed it, closed the thing. That was it. I had a coffee. Everyone else arrives. Oh, you're here early. Yes, you know. I thought, you know, keen and all that. <laughs> Suddenly... A little voice is going on, you can't do that. <laughs> Got to go and tell your boss. It was a private morality test. So that's the first thing, morality test. Second thing is this, a toxic culture. There's a culture in the workplace that just doesn't enable people to thrive. It's a toxic community culture that's been set either by the leadership or by someone else. I worked in a call center, one of the first jobs I ever did. And what I noticed after a few weeks is that if anyone, there was like five, five of us, four and then me on this kind of desk area, kind of like a hot desk. If anyone ever went to the bathroom, when they went, everyone else just slated this person, just said everything they hated about this person when they went. And then when they would come back, Someone else would go off like an hour later, and then the other four, including the person who was slated when they went to the toilet, started on that person. I'll tell you what, it really made you not want to pee. It was like, (laughs) you just do not want to go. It was so, so toxic. Sometimes there's just toxic cultures, gossip, low wages, unreasonable demands that just don't encourage people to thrive. And you're in the middle of that as a Christian living in that context. Sometimes it's just people, it's just spiritually closed. The atmosphere is just spiritually dead. We've been talking about people of peace, and you're just thinking, there just is no one. It just feels like it's dead in my workplace or in my school or my education uh, place with education. It just feels like it's dead. It's just closed. You perhaps have even tried to do a lunchtime alpha or invite somebody to a cow service, and it's just nothing. It just feels like there's a spiritual deadness or it's closed. And, and then lastly, the fourth thing, I think, is sometimes we get deadly enemies. I mean, not people that threaten to throw us in fiery furnaces, but I doubt anyone is going to have someone in their workplace come up to them and say, I'm your nemesis. <laughs> you are my Luke and I'm your Vader. I mean, it's just not, it doesn't happen like that. But sometimes you realize, I've actually got an active enemy here in this place who hates me. And I thought I was such a nice person. And they hate me. I remember one, one situation where... I was meeting with the HR guy in a company that I worked for, and 
he, there was a guy who worked for me, who, to be fair, was a really annoying person, by the way. He was really annoying. And th but this guy just was, he's like the HR guy. He's like slating this guy. I mean, he's just like listing every negative. And by the end of it, I was thinking, well, he is annoying, but he's not that bad. And I said, I said, Gary, I didn't, I'm really surprised at this conversation, you know, being head of HR and everything. I didn't think you were this kind of person. It just kind of slipped out of my mouth. He hated me from that point. I mean, he refused to talk to me. He blanked me in the corridor. Anything I suggested, he countered. He, was, he became, through one slip of the tongue, he became a sworn enemy of me. Sometimes it's deadly enemies. And, and you see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their situation. They're like, bingo, we got all of those. Toxic culture, deadly enemies. Private, public morality test, we have got the whole thing. Notice there's a difference, though, in resistance to when you are just, it's just your own ungodly stuff. You know, it's just your own bad behavior. That's slightly different. And people respond badly towards you because of your own bad behavior. Sometimes I'm, uh, I've been in the workplace thinking, you know, people are persecuting me for, I'm a believer and they don't like Jesus. And, and I, inside I realize, no, it's just because you're being a plonker. Stop it. Anyone else known that as well? <laughs> you can put it down to persecution if you like, but actually, really, you just need to change. So don't confuse the two, but just turn to the person next to you. Which of the four of those have you seen in your uh, life? Which four have you seen in your context? Morality test, toxic culture, Spiritually closed, deadly enemies. Who, who's seen at least one of those? Most of us. Keep your hands up if you've seen all four. If you like, yep, I've witnessed every single one of those. Put your hand up if you're experiencing at least one of those right now. So you're living in one of those at least right now. Just keep, an, let's keep your hands up if that's you. If you're, near that, you. if you're near a person with a hand up, you've become the ministry team at the end of this message, okay? Because we've got brothers and sisters here who are living with this. The reality is all of us will see this at some point. How do we handle it? How do we handle it? Well, let's just look at them, shall we? Firstly, the morality test. And I would say, you can see from this story, one of the most profound and powerful things from this story, and also the story that Steve shared last week about Daniel, was one of the key things for these guys is that they were in it together. <laughs> Community is critical when you're facing a morality test. Daniel, when he is in this place, he goes to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they have got each other in this situation. They stand together. And I would say what happens in a morality test is there's a little voice that goes off in your head that says, keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone. Public, private, keep it quiet. Keep this thing on the down low. You know, the you've got the morality test to cheat on your taxes or to adjust something or to steal something. There's a little voice that says, keep it quiet. Particularly if you've already made the mistake. Anyone ever done that? You've already made the blunder. And you always think, I don't even believe I should have done that. And now it's too late. I've done it. The voice goes off, keep it quiet. I would say, whatever you do, rebel against that voice. <laughs> Tell somebody, because there is nothing like having the counsel of a believer, having someone alongside you, even if they're just praying for you, 
It's critical that we have accountability in this situation. The voice will say, even, even being tempted by this means that you're a useless and hopeless Christian. Anyone had that voice going on? The very fact that you're tempted, other proper Christians would never be tempted by something like this. But the reality is, even Jesus was tempted. So if you're tempted, it means one thing only. You're breathing. It means you're still alive and you haven't died and this is all a dream state. You are, a, you are breathing that, and you're alive. That's what temptation means. Notice that the fact that these guys had something in it together. Having someone praying is key. And, and the second thing is this. Seek another way where possible. Sometimes there's a way around it. Talk to the person in influence and say, look, this is a, don't come across as mightier, holier than thou, but just humbly say, this is causing me a real issue here. Can we talk about this? Have a chat, talk, talk to them about it. Think about the benefits. You know, uh, one of the things that changed my boss in that situation was when I said to him, if I, if I can lie for you, I'll lie to you. <laughs> And I don't ever want to lie to you. I tell you, after that conversation, he never saw me in the same light again. He, treat, he confided in me stuff that he hadn't confided in anyone else. Something shifted in our relationship then. His worldview changed. And he was the one who'd been actively encouraging me to lie. And then lastly, if there's no way through, then it has to be a clear and a humble no. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. If you're going to throw us in the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He'll deliver us from your hand, O king. But if it's not, let it be known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice this. The key issue in this situation is trust. I mean, for some of you, and I appreciate this, for some of you, it's not a fiery furnace, but you're, you're, in, a, you're in another type of furnace you know if you stand up in this morality test, you're even in the midst of it now, you know that you're, there's a potential that your job is on the line. I, I recognize this is sobering stuff, and this is not a great environment to have your job on the line. The temptation is just to conform, keep your head down. But actually, recognize this. These guys trusted in God, and they said, I trust God to deliver me out of this, but even if he doesn't, I'm still not going to do it. <laughs> Ultimately, our salaries don't come from our employers. The Father is the one who provides. He uses our employers to provide for us. But ultimately, our salaries don't come. That He is the one who provides for us. And, and I've seen again and again through my working career, where, and even, even now, where I've faced that morality test, and, and I've walked it through with Jesus, I've had people praying for me, God has provided again and again. What about some of the other resistances? What about toxic culture? You've got a culture, an environment around you that's against people flourishing. What does that look like? It doesn't come out in this story but, uh, so much, but if you read the book of Daniel, you recognize these guys are living from heaven's culture. These guys live from a different place. We've got a really clear culture as a community together, honor, authenticity, acceptance, courage, generosity, a culture that we try and live out as a community together so that we can then live out in the world around. That's the whole point, not just that we have a nice time together, close the doors, lock the doors, keep everyone else out. The reality is we want to live that culture here so that when we're out in the world, when we're out meeting those who 
who don't follow Jesus, we can live the same culture there. There there is an amazing number of schools and businesses around Bedfordshire and further that if you look on their website and you'll see a little tab that says culture and you look down the list and you'll notice those cultures and you'll say, I recognize some of those cultures. That's because believers from this community are already living out in that place and making a difference. There is the ability to change culture if we live it out from the inside out. I remember a lady came here, and she was coming here for months, and then she came up to me, and she said, my boss has been speaking really strangely over the last couple of years. He's been speaking about stuff like honor and generosity, and I never knew where he was getting it from until I came here, and then I suddenly realized. You see, we can live this stuff out without ever putting a Christian badge on it, because people are attracted to heaven's culture. Live from it yourself. Tell stories to encourage the culture that you want to see. When you see generosity, applaud it. So often as Christians, we can appear those who are saying, don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other. Whereas actually, we have to come in and be those who are the first to say, I'm applauding that. That is brilliant. I love that. Thank you when you did that. You were so honest in that meeting today. Thank you so much. It made such a difference to me. When you see heaven's culture in the workplace, applaud it, celebrate it. Because what we celebrate will replicate. What we celebrate will grow. And then lastly, without criticizing the negative, seek opportunities to bring the positive, to bring culture change. There was a guy here who moved into a new job in graphic design. He he was from a company called Oak, and he moved to a different company. And um, after about a month or or two or three months of being there, a lady came up to him. She said, I had the strangest dream before you came. She said, in the dream, a guy from Oak came to our company and changed the whole culture of the place. I'm going to tell our bosses who own the company. He's like, all right. <laughs> so she told him, and they hauled him in and said, She's, we've had a strange thing happen. This lady's telling us that she had a dream about you before you arrived. We don't really have a framework for this. What do you know about culture? And we've just been through the culture series. Of church. She goes, well, I know a little bit. <laughs> Led them through a whole process of culture transformation as a business. This is the reality, is that cultures can change if we just live faithfully, day in, day out. I know sometimes it can be despairing, but that's part of recognizing that Jesus brought heaven's culture to earth when it was really despairing so that we can do the same in our workplaces. Cultures can be changed. What about if it's spiritually closed? You know, sometimes just living from the morality test, living and passing the morality test enables you to open a spiritually closed environment just, just winning the morality test, just beating it, changes things. The, the, the boss that I uh, uh, refuse to lie to, the boss that I, I confess this stuff for, in both times, in both opportunities, things began to open up in that workplace because of honesty. Uh, the relationships changed because of that. Very often, though, it's just about faithfully serving and praying. It's just about staying faithful to what you believe, serving the place, honoring those around you, faithfully serving, and slowly and surely things will begin to change. God begins to move, particularly as you pray. I mean, there's a school around here that has been historically incredibly closed. Out of all the schools, they have no CU, massive spiritual resistance. 
And we've observed as parents have had kids in that school and they've begun to pray for that school, the softening, the opening. There's now Christians moving into senior places with influence to change things. Something's happening, but it's not through some big confrontation or fanfare. It's just by faithful service and faithful prayer, closed environments. At the end of the day, we serve the God who opens doors and no one can shut them. (laughs) So if something's closed then the reality is you can open it through God. Hudson Taylor used to say this, if poss- it is possible to move men through prayer alone. <laughs> that was his story. He never asked anyone for money. He never fundraised like that. He just decided, I'm going to move men through prayer alone. And he saw cultures changed in, in China. And then lastly, deadly enemies are against you. Remember, firstly, who your real enemy is. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, well, we are not fighting against flesh and blood but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Secondly, it's a, when you have an actual enemy, it is a brilliant opportunity to love your enemies, to actually learn what that means. This HR guy who just hated me, it was literally like this. I would, morning, Gary. He would blank me. He just would look the other way. Have a good weekend, he would say nothing. It was like this for months. He would ignore me unless he absolutely had to speak to me in a meeting, and he would do it then through gritted teeth because it was like painful. But just the slow consistency of loving him, of being the same, of not responding. I tried to talk to him, he wouldn't talk to me about it. I tried to say sorry, he wasn't interested, even though I didn't have anything to say sorry for. He just wouldn't, but slowly, 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 he softened over months. Learning to love our enemies in that place is a key key thing. And then refusing to be intimidated. I remember the uh, Bible teacher David Pawson, um, he said uh, he was was going through a period where he was being slandered in the press and by other believers. They were saying horrible things about him. And he took it to the Lord. He said, Lord, they're saying awful things about me. They're saying horrible things. It's in the newspapers. It's everywhere. And it's just awful. And the Lord spoke to him and said, David, it's not as bad as the truth. <laughs> because the reality is, if the world could see our hearts <laughs> very often, it's not as bad as the truth. Spurgeon said the same thing. He said, If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you are. <laughs> it's by grace that we're here. It's by grace so that when we have enemies who are against us, sometimes it's for good reasons, actually. We can say, do you know what? I'm here by grace. I am saved by grace. I know I'm annoying sometimes. I know I've made mistakes. I'm here by grace. And that reality enables you to stay confident and refuse to be intimidated. And do you know, as we live these things out, we will see the world changed around us, even in the midst of resistance. I mean, listen to Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. This is a guy who was totally does a 180. I mean, he still wanted people to die, but it was just different people. But he does a 180. He does a 180 through one encounter through three men who followed faithfully the living God. Have you accepted your mission? Have you moved beyond survival to realize that you're going to change the world? Have you experienced resistance and decided, you know what, I'm going to stay firm even when there are things coming against me? As we do that, 
we will change the world. God has done it before. He'll do it again. Amen.